Hello, you're listening to Social Science Talk Science Fiction, a podcast in which social scientists, philosophers, researchers and theorists discuss the themes and works of science fiction. This podcast is recorded in the International Politics Building at Aberystwyth University and is available free under a Creative Commons license. We hope you enjoy the programme. Twenty years after it first redefined the disaster genre, the film Independence Day by Roland Emmerich now has a sequel, although the film itself has never been far from the zeitgeist. Here at Social Sci-Fi Towers, we sat down to watch it, to see if it still holds up, and see if it actually has any lessons for today. I'm Matthew Campbell. I'm joined by... Alex Hoseason. Jess Shahan. I'm Glavin Bowen. Okay, so I guess the place we start with is the fact that Alex didn't like it. <laughs> I don't like it, but I, I mean, like, it's two and a half hours long, like, it does the same thing over and over again. I, I mean, I, I think I'm probably willing to accept that it's pretty definitive for what it is. What I'm less willing to accept is that it's a good film. Um, I just think it labours the point so hard and drags it out to such an extent that I was quite glad when it finished. Although I I will point out I didn't like it when it first came out either. My gran forced me to watch it because she really liked it. And I, I was not a fan then, and I'm not a fan now. How old were you when it first came out? This was actually, it was probably when it came out on, D, uh, on BHS. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I mean, I was probably uh, 10 when I watched it, something like that. I don't know, the grandparent thing's possibly kind of interesting, because its whole let's unify to fight an enemy message is really, a, it's a World War II film thing, right? Uh, it's more to do with the fact that my grand really liked Lost in Space. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's, it's a bit of an edge case as far as that I thought you were about to say my grand really likes Jeff Goldblum but well yeah, yeah. Um, I marvel though <laughs> but to me it represents like the classic 90s film it, it's the movie I've seen so many times uh, on TV on VHS that I've just lost count it's probably upwards of 30-40 times I've seen this film and yeah. even when I watch it again and again even if it's like starting in the middle of it it's just some sort of familiar cultural landscape from like a 90s American childhood yeah I, I think maybe I, like I said I'm willing to accept that it does everything right in some ways like but I think the problem is like it hits all the right buttons but now we know what the buttons are right so you know the speech at the end and ripping off Dylan Thomas and all the rest of it you know I, you get goosebumps because you get goosebumps because you're supposed to right it, it feels like that classic sports film but with aliens blowing up stuff instead of beating, you know, the opposing team. That's really the script it takes. I mean, despite it being a very unimaginative film in terms of the genre, the sci-fi genre, Alien Invasion is still very enjoyable because it's, yeah, destroying things, blowing things up, great dogfight battles, America saves the day. It's... I mean, you've got, got to accept that's the sort of film that it is. It's not meant to be, a, you know, a, a masterpiece as such. I mean, it's unimaginative in the sense that the alien ships are flying saucers and that's fine, but isn't that just to make it immediately understandable? Yeah, and and you've got the same sort of cliché of, you know, we have this one thing which saves the day, which in this case is a computer virus and a nuke. Um, You know, you have this silver bullet to a problem, which is just in, like, almost every science fiction um, alien invasion film. Well, I mean, it's a complete adaptation of The War of the Worlds, no, Day of the Triplets. No, War of the Worlds. Worlds. War of the Worlds. Is where it's It's an actual virus that kills them. Yeah, Yeah, right. But going back to the flying saucer thing, it actually does serve a purpose because it plays off of all of the UFO, flying saucer, like, Route 66, Area 51 type of 
myths and images that you have, particularly in the U.S. surrounding tourism in that area. There's this sort of kitschy circular flying saucer that's going to come abduct you and off a country road sort of imagery that you just grow up with. I did actually wonder whether that had a kind of, um, just asking you just whether that has some kind of deeper, uh, whether it has a deeper resonance than it does with me, because when, when I think of like the whole Area 51 thing and you know the grey aliens with big eyes and all the, all the rest of it, you know, I mean, I, I can appreciate that. I think I've always appreciated it as a fairly kind of ironic thing, right? Like grey men and ET. And I, I didn't know whether there's something specific about Area 51 which is perhaps more embedded in the American psyche than it is, at least for me. I think it might be a little both because you have sort of the kitschy, joking alien images, but at the same time you have the concept of Area 51 where, hey, the government's keeping this big secret from you. And I think both of those are sort of undercurrents that you get as part of this film. Yeah, I mean, it seems to pull in, like, quite a lot of things. So, I mean, the, the, the drunk... Russell Case. Non-veteran. Played by Randy Quaid. Yeah, who, who kind of sacrifices himself and has basically no role in the plot other than to be a traumatised veteran who was previously abducted by aliens, who's one of whose kids looks remarkably like Keanu Reeves, but definitely isn't Keanu Reeves. <laughs> But he, he has no plot role or role in the film other than that. Right? And comedy effect that gets them to where they're going. Yeah. He does deliver an airplane reference as well. <laughs> yes. He gets into the cockpit and he says, picked a hell of a day to quit drinking. So this. I enjoyed that. <laughs> it's curious that a film which revels so much in the American psyche of greys and flying saucers would make the only character who actually seems to care about those things a joke right so the moment the flying saucers and the grey aliens turn up people should stop laughing at the people who claim they've been abducted by flying saucers and yet people in the film still do and that doesn't really seem to make much sense yes that is odd because I mean, that would you know make people question so much of what they understand about the world um, and I mean that element doesn't really isn't really ex explored in the film how you know people's worldviews are shattered. I mean, you have that one um, man who um, you know goes into a religious delirium uh, in in the scenes uh, when you know um, uh, Will Will Smith's wife's character, Jasmine. Jasmine, um, she's driving along and you know she tries to get him onto the truck and no, he's just there reading. And it's another War of the Worlds reference, though, isn't it? Yes, to the, yeah. the broken pastor. Yeah, uh, Pastor Nathaniel. Yeah, so uh, another big reference. But other than that, people's worldviews aren't really challenged in this film, which, I mean, okay, it's it's not that sort of film, because the film is, yes, very light-hearted, a lot of com uh, comic relief in there. Well, religious worldviews aren't challenged, but political worldviews absolutely are. I mean, it's there in that slightly cringy scene where the Iraqi pilots and the Israeli pilots nod to each other. But that's very much a whatever you've built your identity around no longer applies. You know that was challenged, that scene was challenged by the um, uh, Le 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 Lebanese yeah. government. It doesn't deeply surprise as, me, right? Yeah, as kind of Israeli propaganda. And, yeah, yeah, Hezbollah had a lot to say about yeah. that film. <laughs> uh, they told me... Like they gave a 6 out of 10 yeah. on <laughs> IMDb. Yeah. But, but, but then, I mean, you know, you look at real history and look at the 1991 Gulf War... Um, Israel and the Arab states did gang up together against uh, Saddam's Iraq. So, you know, if, they, if some of those countries can gang up with Israel against Saddam, I'm sure they could pair up against aliens destroying cities. 
Um, so for me, it's not that much of an earth-shattering moment. I think there is definitely something in it which, and it, it's kind of hard to, like I was thinking about this, it's kind of hard to get my head around. This film was made before 9-11. Yeah. Right, and I think that's quite an important statement to make in terms of you've got two things going on. You've got post-Cold War American optimism combined with it being relatively soon after, after the Gulf War. So, I mean, these kind of tensions play itself out, but, I mean, it doesn't have that kind of... It still believes in this... It, it still has this kind of, like, bringing the world together view of how history develops. That a war you might have to fight will be one you might be able to win. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, this is set in, arguably, the height of America's unipolar moment. So, before it got dragged into its wars... Uh, in, in the Middle East, where everybody was still overawed by the 1991 Gulf War spectacle. It's still also a bit surreal, the scene where the ship is flying over New York and you see the Twin Towers. Yeah. Like, watching yeah. that is just... It, it's a little weird, and it's, you can't quite articulate how. It's testament to how influential this film was, that the idea of blowing up the monuments of New York as a thing a villain does still occurs in cinema despite 9-11, the Independence Day's popularity of blowing up landmarks has been so strong that it's still a go-to reference. And while it wasn't the first film to do it, it really seems to have launched the resurgence of, I don't know what you call it, destruction porn or something uh, like that. You Michael go to Bay. those... Bay. Yeah, the Michael Bay sort of... You see everything that's iconic blown up TV, or destroyed. TV Tropes just calls it a monumental destruction. I mean, it is, it is definitely it, it definitely draws on some kind of home feeling or, or some kind of feeling of familiarity, right? Because I mean, city skylines are iconic, yeah. at least in a lot of contexts. You know, you got the, the Eiffel Tower, the Houses of Parliament, you know, the um, Empire State Building, or the World Trade Center, and it, it certainly is some kind of device. Uh, was it Fringe that uses the World Trade Center as a distinguishing thing between which of the two worlds I think it is the fringe. series is in? And it's the funny thing is in Fringe, it's it's not that they get destroyed; it's just that they're not there. Mm. And it's it's actually quite deeply unsettling when you realise that, despite all these other tricks and stuff, all you need to realise that we're not in Kansas anymore, as it were, is that well, just this this silhouette, this certain part of the silhouette is missing. The the one that really gets you like that is because we've all done it. We reinstall and play the first level of Deus Ex, and. Not only has the Statue of Liberty been decapitated by terrorists, but the Twin Towers are not there on the New York skyline. Are they not? No, they're not. Although, apparently, the reason for this is that they couldn't make a graphics file which actually fit them in because they were too tall. <laughs> so they took them out and then put in um, some of the background information that if it comes up, say they were destroyed by terrorists. Yeah. Oh, cool. uh, so, yeah, skylines appear to be the iconic thing which leave you unsettled. So, I mean, is, is this the... Is this the first film that did this? Or is it the first... It, it, surely it's not the first one that did I mean, Planet of the Apes did something similar, I guess, right? Well, yeah. Like New York and stuff. As I guess said, the same thing does it quite so viscerally. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, it's certainly the time that this was subject to, like, a massive budget. Well, it's big marketing um, push with posters was the picture of the White Towers mm-hmm. being destroyed. And but, of course, it, it does the scale thing, right? I mean, when, when we see a city skyline in a lot of these films and... You know, even things like Friends, you know, the opening credits where you see the New York skyline and, and all the rest of it, we're asked to kind of revel in the scale of it and the life that it contains and all the rest of it, right? And of course, what's that counterposed with an Independence Day? Well, it's counterposed by a UFO which is far bigger than, what, 15 miles across or whatever in the film, you know, which completely 
Now, actually, the scariest scenes in Independence Day are the advancing shadow, right? They're not any footage of the aliens, which you see relatively little of, or the actual thing itself. It's just the shadow moving across the ground. At the same time, though, the sort of image of it coming towards you, it's not necessarily the shadow for me. It was the clouds, um, the sort of firestorm, the plane going in and then getting incinerated. They're um, those nature. are the things that yeah, really struck me. That was a very religious kind of thing. And it also reminded me of a lot of the sort of environmental destruction movies mm-hmm. that you have in the US. So the uh, St. Helena one blowing up. Um, 2012. There was uh, Earthquake. Um, Dante's Peak, is that the one? Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. that might be yeah. the one. There's a lot of like classic natural 90s disaster natural disaster mm-hmm. movies that this sort of plays into. They... I'm not sure which came first of those series, yeah. but it's just this 90s genre. Mm. Well, I guess, so there were a lot of 80s films, like, so Escape from New York had a ruined Statue of Liberty because that was their shorthand. There was a film, I forget when it was released, called Earth vs. the Flying Saucers or something, where one of the Flying Saucers crashes into the uh, Washington Monument. But yeah, before um, Independence Day, it's mostly an environmental feel. Although, funnily enough, in Independence Day, because to rip off one of the articles on doing you don't speak to the monsters, it is effectively a force of nature, right? I mean, functionally, as far as the plot goes, there's nothing they can do about it. It advances and destroys everything and so and so on, right? I mean, it's just a slightly different kind of... It's the same story, but from a slightly different imaginative place. Though, throughout the film, you do get an environmental, environmentalism theme that's worth noting in it. Yeah. Uh, particularly through David and his desire to recycle everything, the riding the bicycle, all of those things come through. Yeah, and and his reaction later to using nuclear weapons. weapons. You you were excited about nuclear weapons. Excited is maybe the wrong word. Are you excited about nuclear weapons? (laughs) Excited to talk about them. (laughs) Excited by them. You were interested by the role they play in the film. Well, I mean, the level of nuclear restraint was quite remarkable in that film. Um, it was, yeah, it's the first time I've watched it in many, many years. I mean, when I watched it recently. So, um, yeah, I mean, the Americans only reluctantly unleashed their nuclear weapons after, after the first wave of cities had been destroyed. Now, I can't imagine, say, the Russians or the Chinese or the British or the French not retaliating with nukes as well. Um, uh, you know, only after the Americans did it first. Because I would imagine once the capital has been vaporised by these aliens, you were just, right, we've got to throw our best things at them. So I would imagine once one of them had done that first, the news would have gone around pretty quickly, or don't waste your leaks. Um, but it's the Americans again that do that. And may- maybe, you know, may- in the story, it's nothing wrong if that's actually what would happen. But it's like, because there's just that absence of the other nuclear weapon states in the world, and it just gives that impression that the Americans are leading the fight back. And Whereas the Chinese, Russians... French um, could have, and the British could have tried something. The Israelis too, um, but that that aspect isn't there, which is really interesting. And then when you have the conventional counterattack after the virus has been uploaded, you have these air forces going in at them. I mean, surely given the size of that ship, why do they still go at them with conventional missiles? They're so physically massive that you know even bunker buster weapons could properly destroy them, you'd actually need to get a proper nuke on them, which they would be vulnerable to. So I can imagine, again, something that isn't in the film, and doesn't have to be, but if we're thinking more realistically about alien invasion, um, you'd have everybody throwing their nukes at these newly vulnerable 
uh, mother ships, sorry, not mother ships, um, slave ships. So you just have loads of nuclear weapons going off around the world, and then we'd be around to deal with that. Yeah, so I mean, they do note the fall fallout in the film. Yeah. Don't they? I think the president, one of the reasons he doesn't want to, is because basically involves laying off a nuclear weapon over New York or uh, Washington. Yeah, but then it's ignored because the film gives you the impression that glorious air forces, the Americans' go-to weapon in this post-Cold War era, can solve it for you. You know, the great, you know, strategically decisive tool of air power. When that was probably the remains of what the US had left with its air power at that time. That wasn't deployed in, say, the Middle East. So I would guess that most countries would just launch their nukes. Well, it's, they, they say we're putting up everything we can throw together, and there's this fleet of identical Tomcats, right? <laughs> and not whatever, there's no Skyhawks or um, BAE Hawks, which are the training aircraft, or... And then they also put a tactical nuke in the middle of the mothership. That ship is massive. You need a strategic level nuke for that. It's tactical nukes under more than about five kilotons. So they label it a tactical nuke. Yeah. I mean, you do, have this, you do have this kind of, at least in terms of the plot, the nuclear weapons play this interesting thing of being the being the kind of weapon of last resort, right? So them not working and effectively pinging off the shields is the ultimate emasculation, right, of, of American strategic power um, in that sense. I mean... It was weird. The the Air Force thing, you know, I mean, just the kind of jump between the scene where they're like, oh, we're going to have to give you a crash course in modern avionics, ha, 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 right? And then, like, perfectly in formation, um, strike strike planes, F-18s, I can't remember what they were. F-A-18, Hornets. Yeah, Hornets, which is an air-to-air fighter anyway, isn't it? I don't know. I don't know much about it, but it seems a little bit misplaced. But anyway, um, you know, it, it is certainly a particular kind of power fantasy, um, as as far as that goes. I mean, even visually, right? You know, the the fighter plane being the closest thing to a spaceship that the Americans have, as opposed to the space shuttle. Well, no, but I mean mili- <laughs> militarily, right? Yeah. It was always going to be a high tech solution. Yeah. Right. I mean, actually, you can counterpose that with. The narratives in is it Stargate where which was made by the same director actually wasn't it yeah um, where bullets go through shields but the laser weapons don't yeah so actually in in quite a lot of these things you get that kind of primitivism thing where it's like well actually these kind of super high tech weapons we saw the same in World War Z um, what was it they 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 stop working in these circumstances right but in this it's not it's very much a technical solution. Although there is the news clip in the beginning, um, or towards the beginning, where people in Los Angeles are warned to not fire their guns at the <laughs> alien ship. At yeah. <laughs> oh, risk is, of starting an interstellar war. It is very oh, that funny, though, one, that it's all very American-centric uh, until the counterattack. Mm-hmm. You don't see much of what's going on elsewhere. So someone else could have used a nuke. We don't necessarily know that. But it's implied that it isn't. Is that yeah. centrism mostly a function of Hollywood film at the time? Because you wouldn't do that now. Indeed, they didn't do that with the sequel. The idea that the European and Asian markets mattered as much to a film named after its own release date. Well, I can't speak to the set sequel because I haven't seen it. Um, but yeah, but for me, it's like that's another cliche in the genre and also Hollywood. It's like, yeah, it's the Americans that saved the day somehow. Um, I mean, on a, a bit of a tangent, the Spielberg remake of War of the Worlds, 
um, they make some passing reference to the Japanese being the first to take down the tripod. So for me, I wasn't expecting that in the big American... Well, I think that's Asian a joke about monsters. their troops are used to fighting big walking monsters. <laughs> I mean, if you... Uh, uh, what's the uh, to- the monster movie with uh, Gezera, the cuttlefish thing? In in that one, it turns out... What, there's one of the Japanese monster movies where the Japanese army has an anti-monster artillery unit who turn up and are specially trained to take on big city-sized... So no, I think that might be a reference to the uh, tendency of sci-fi people to imagine that the Japanese army have experience with this. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so yeah, so in terms of the you know American lead, I think it's very typical. Um, but but, but in, in, in given the scenario in Independence Day, quite unrealistic, because I'm pretty sure that nukes have been resorted to sooner than they are in that film by somebody. Um, so you research space and security and strategy uh, and you were saying that the coordination between um, space science and the military in this film was quite interesting um, yeah the, the SETI because it, it starts off with the search for extraterrestrial intelligence so the SETI um, installation and I mean yeah they would pick up a radio signal that the alien would be broadcasting um, but SETI is much more international in that regard. So what they find goes to the UN. There's no direct contact to US Space Command, as far as, far as we know. <laughs> um, officially, you know, SETI goes to, to the UN, and there's a UN office, that, and there's, there are procedures in line to deal with any contact or believed to be intelligence signals. But the Americans and the Russians have their own deep space networks, which would have picked this craft up anyway. So for me, being you know this being my nerdy area, that's not how the Americans would have learned those massive spacecraft was going. Well, it's very similar to the movie Contact in that regard as yeah. well, and the depiction of it where study just sort of goes up the U.S. chain of command, and eventually it does the international thing as they're bouncing it from uh, receiving post to uh, other posts. But it does have that sort of feel that it's going through the chain of command, the military, American sort of complex of it is just part of that organizational structure. I think it's funny actually because that would have made so much more sense for the story. <laughs> because actually, because it's just interested in American supremacy. If it wasn't interested in that, if it was wanting to tell a, a better story, then actually that would have given interesting justification for them not knowing about Area 51 or not mentioning it until most of the world is destroyed because you, then you would have this kind of standard like, oh, the military is unable of breaking out of its own chains. Of I think the film like, wants to be about more than America. The film wants to be deep and international, even if it's portrayal of other places. No, the, no, the difference is it's an American film wanting to be more than American. Okay. So, I mean, I it's always... That, it, 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 that's its starting point. Yeah, but on, on your point on yeah, Area Fifty One and everything being hidden, and even after they've learned, right, everybody knows that alien exists. Still, the CIA head doesn't tell the president that we have Area Fifty One and that. Okay, yeah, they, these are what they look like. This is what we know, um, and also it's 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 very. I mean, again, it's not on the film and doesn't necessarily have to be, but it would be much more interesting if, well, okay, those aliens crash landed in Roswell in the forties, and yet there's been no further listening posts set up in orbit or around the moon to think, 
if any of these people come again, we should probably find out and be, you know, just have that extra warning and is, you know, not relying on SETI. So is that realistic of the intelligence community that they'd rather keep something a secret than do something useful with it? I wonder if it's also more realistic of 90s versus more contemporary intelligence climates and concepts of openness as well. That we can't help but look at it through a more contemporary lens than the sort of 90s wanting to close off and keep everything secret. I mean, it's only in the 90s, like in the UK, for example, that we have openness initiatives really come into play. Uh, in the US, there's similar patterns, and it's this grudging step, you know, it's trudge towards openness that you see. But it's not necessarily about openness, it's about telling the President of the United States about it. But with an elected official that you know, could be out of office at, you know, in four years, do you want to tell them? And can you make them keep it secret? In the US that might not be as easy. Then we get into conversation and discussion about oversight because if the CIA is allowed to keep some secrets from the top elected official, then who watches the CIA to make sure the CIA is keeping the right sort of secrets from that? And, and I mean, they, that's, an, yeah. that's a massive... Absolutely, problem. and in the case of Congress, are they doing that effectively, which is the other question it brings up, because you have the Secretary of Defense, who's totally well aware of everything, but did Congress know of this when they went to, say, their bunkers to be safe? Because because how much the the SecDef and CIA chief aren't less political than the president in their appointments. There's so. a curious way the film lays that out, because, of course, the, the good advisor and the president are old-school war heroes. Yeah. Uh, and the bad advisor, who knows all this secret stuff, uh, it's not made clear what his background is, but he wears a suit. Uh, he's clearly not a military man. But this is also compounded by the fact that, I mean, even the war hero narrative is disrupted a little bit by... The cynical foil for that whole conversation is the Jewish guy, right? Which is kind of weird because he's the one that kind of disrupts that. Well, you know, that stuff doesn't cost that much. You know, like he, he's almost kind of making the point that this has been overlooked through some kind of institutional arrogance. Mm. Now, the civil military relations is quite interesting. Um, I mean, relative to. Um, uh, another book, uh, a book I read called Footfall by um, Larry Niven and Jerry Purnell. They have um, a coup at the end of that book in the US um, where the aliens are on the ropes, they're about to win and they get offered a truce by the aliens and the, the, the Joint Chiefs of Staff um, Chief is saying to the President, no, you need to annihilate them now or we'll lose our advantage. But the President decides, no. Um, we're going to have a truce and the military organises a coup to wipe out the aliens um, and force a surrender of the ones that are destroyed and so so here it's like what, and then watching Independence Day it's like yeah civil military relations doesn't really break down at all in this film well of um, course the, the, the aliens are interesting there because there's, there's no need to negotiate or no. worry or debate the, the aliens, they're, aren't, they're not characters in Independence Day. They are unstoppable, they are implacable, they will not negotiate, they're inherently warlike, they have no concept of the word coexist. So, no wonder humanities, different nations and civil military relations are able to get along. Their, their enemy is arbitrarily evil. Yeah. That um, makes it easier. Yeah. I, think it, I think that's the point at which the film gives away a lot of the material that it's drawing on. I mean, I'm, I'm sure when it came out it was an incredibly innovative film, but it's still got these deep roots and kind of 19th century uh, kind of science fiction. I mean, it, it, it goes back to actually what you were saying about 
this massive space spacecraft being behind the moon and all the rest of it. I mean, that, that's such a typical 19th century device, right? We don't know where they came from, but we couldn't see behind the moon. Should we use that as the intro? <laughs> but I mean, you know, it's such a classic device, right? And so, you know, this is exactly what happens in War of the Worlds. You know, so it, it, it still relies on those quite easy tropes to kind of keep the plot moving while at least ostensibly being a more kind of contemporary narrative. Well, it's also interesting how they manage to keep civilians as part of the film as well. Because you end up at this military base in the middle of nowhere that's supposed to be a secret. But you have a bunch of people in RVs and this sort of just moving caravan to get to safety. Refugees, you might Yeah, them. yeah mm-hmm. you could. Um, and <laughs> they all end up at this military base. But it's not until the, I believe the press secretary points out to one of the people at the base saying, hey, these people are out there and there's an attack coming this way. That's when they start actually carrying and evacuating people, bringing them into the base. And it's just sort of this last-ditch effort. But you have these civilians that just sort of follow our main characters sort of throughout the film. The civilian scenes are also the only place where female characters get breathing room to be characters. With the exception of the press secretary. Yes. Um, But it's interesting that the... Certainly Jasmine as a character is walled off from the plot. She's an objective that Captain Hillard wants to settle down with his good woman, but she doesn't contribute to the plot in the sense of defeating the aliens. She's there as a moral centre. Yes and no. I mean, there are sort of scenes with her, because it's Viv K. Fox, who her scenes are just somewhat subversive at the same time. She isn't the sort of typical goal. She is a stripper. She's not necessarily... Even um, the captain's friend warns them off, saying, no, she's not marriage material, you'll never get a job with NASA because if you marry her, it'll just look too bad. But she's also the character that cares about those around her. She's one of those people that warns her friend not to go to the top of the building to party and welcome the aliens. Um, She kicks down a door to save her son, but at the same time she also finds a vehicle that's working after the attack and she (laughs) starts picking up other survivors to take them to a place where she hopes will be safe. And where she encounters another great movie cliche, which is the keys are always in the blinds above the driver's seat. It is a great cliche to have. (laughs) But yeah, but but, yeah, watching that, I was like, actually she's a very strong lead character in that sense when she's gathering those people on the truck and just trying to help and you know she's in charge there and to have a female uh, African-American in that role from a mid-90s film um, you know. I mean she's kick-ass in the scenes where Will Smith yeah. isn't it, yes that's what it comes down to yeah I see it's still compromising quite a lot because it was it's a film which doesn't accept doesn't accept that as kind of a legitimate thing to drive the film and so instead also has two other love stories to kind of push it along just in case you can't sympathise with the black woman. Yeah, and that's the part that's frustrating about it. It's, and then... She could be enough on, for a movie no, on she, her she own. Absolutely absolutely. Is. She's by far the most interesting character when none of the other characters are around. The kid's kind of cute as well, but when, when, <laughs> you know, when the other characters aren't around. But then, this is the degree of compromise this film goes in. It, 
then decides to have two other love stories, right, to back up the fact that if you can't sympathise with her, and then each of those love stories ends in one of the two ways that kind of love story can end. You get married at the end, or you get back together and you fall in love forever or whatever, or the object of your affection dies, right? So it manages to have all of these things in, <laughs> right? rather than having the conviction to follow through on one, and I think that was one of the things that got on my nerves a little bit. On the upside, though, it wasn't just centric to one love story. You have multiple stories that are intersecting, and you don't have the, oh, the triumphant prize is the only narrative you're faced with. There at least is loss. So look what happens when you have that one romance-slash-family story. You have Spielberg's War of the Worlds at the top of this, <laughs> which was awful. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, rem- I remain unconvinced, but I'm... So I guess that brings us to the nature of the male heroes. Um, because while they all share the trait of there is a good woman who they're hoping to come home to, and in two of those cases they succeed, and the marriages which were either on the rocks or maybe wouldn't happen in the first place, hooray, the relationship works. But aside from that cliché, they're not conventional action heroes, at least not conventional 90s action heroes. Yeah, I mean, the one thing I was wondering when I was watching this was the kind of actually attractive geek hacker stereotype. I was one, I was wondering when that comes up because I I'm really bad at dating films, but I mean, is 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 that like an early instance of that? Well, I mean, Hackers not, was what year was Hackers? I'm not sure. Early nineties, but though, I think it was around the same yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, this is also the point at which you have like the dot com boom, and I mean, it's later than that, but. You know, you're starting to get this kind of like internet. This is Jeff Goldblum. This is Jeff Goldblum at, aside from Jurassic Park, his Jeff Goldblumiest. Plus, <laughs> um, having that though, he he has a computer and he wears glasses and he's Jewish. He's clearly a nerd. Yeah, he's not that. muscled and toned and lean in the same way that. Um, President Whitmore or Captain Hiller are. Although, funnily enough, becomes more so as the film goes on. Yeah. He starts the film kind of in a kind of stereotypical kind of geeky outfit. He's playing chess with his Jewish stereotype dad, you know, so and so on. They're by playing the end chess of it, and having an argument if right. they wanted to just lean on the stereotype. And by the end of it, he's walking around in a military uniform and. But remember, 1996 was a few years after people in places like RAND, defence intelligence establishments and military and policy think tanks were all talking about cyber warfare, information warfare, hacking. This was meant to be the new cool edge of modern warfare, information warfare. So that might explain maybe how Jeff Goldblum becomes very militaristic by the end of it because of that, it's cutting edge for the military. It really comes during the Gulf War. Right? Oh, yeah, and the revolution of military affairs. So yeah. it dovetails with cutting edge military thinking and technology at that time. So of course, what saves the day? Hacking into the computer system of the enemy. Although it's interesting to note if you contrast those two images of him. In the beginning you have this sort of geeky environmentalist guy and by then he's smoking a cigar and not really caring that you also have that contrasting image to deal with too. It's sort of the accepting that he's probably going to die, but oh wait, he doesn't, so the little things might not matter as much in the end. Well, he's become masculinized by that point. Yeah. Because this is the David who wins his wife back. The one who uses that weird satellite thing to find his wife in the White House 
is the unsuccessful David. He's smart. Which is super but, creepy, by the way. Yeah. It is super creepy. I mean, it, it's... Also, all... shouldn't the Secret Service have something to say about that? <laughs> it's also very much this kind of love story, which is, you know, you, you don't care enough about what you do, you're not passionate enough, and all this kind of thing. Effectively, like, the only thing I ever wanted you to do was to do something great, right? This kind of role that his wife ends up playing as a kind of support to that character arc. And it, it's kind of weird. I mean, the Will Smith character is, is slightly more interesting because obviously at this point he's known as a rapper. He's the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. He, is, he is the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, but actually at the very beginning of the film plays it extremely straight-laced. He's the guy that has to get back to the military base to fulfil his duty to his country and all the rest of it. And even he kind of... He's a you know, fucking he's, pilot he's, who wants to be an astronaut. He's the go-getter, right? But then at the end of the film he too is falling back on some of those more, you know, after he's punched an alien battle suit in the battle suit face. Well, there is an interesting parallel you can draw between the sort of two main couples, because you have Will Smith's character, who is super ambitious, and you can hold her and the press secretary, on the, or him and the press secretary on the same level of, they're the ambitious go-getters, they're the ones that want to proceed in their careers, whereas Jasmine and David both are just getting through their lives, you know, the day-to-day living of it. And they, neither of them necessarily want a huge career change or working towards it. They just are living their lives. And it's an odd parallel to draw there, but I think that as it shifts, the um, press, secretary, press secretary's roles sort of minimized um, as you go throughout the movie oh, and as you have the masculinization of David, really. I remember, I forgot at the start that the Mir space station is destroyed. It's very sad. Yeah, you'd have thought the space stations would be useful to all the people in the... It also happens in Armageddon. I don't know what it is about American disaster movies. Like, quick, get rid of Mir. We can't have the Russians be better or something. Well, Mir used to break quite a lot. Like, I think... Well, remember, (laughs) it was only in the late 90s that they started building the ISS. So, the only space station up in space for most of the 90s until Mir crashed back to Earth in 97, I think, was, was the Russian yeah. one. So that was the only human presence in outer space at the time. Um, and now back to square one, the Russians are the only human access to space. <laughs> yeah. or, you know, except in the Chinese who are, you know, progressing. So uh, we're going to put a spoiler cut in here now. Uh, one of us has actually seen the sequel, so uh, there's now a spoiler warning coming down for Independence Day Resurgence. Uh, Jess, what did you think of the film? <laughs> Cover your ears if you don't want spoilers. Um, <laughs> this isn't the trailer, though, but London gets blown up finally, which, uh, I, to be honest, I saw it on the 23rd. Um, I've been planning on seeing it anyway. What do you mean, then. finally? <laughs> I, I, it finally came out in Aber on the 23rd. All right. I thought you meant London so, finally got blown up. I've watched so many World War II films and no avail. Yeah, I was thinking. Well, uh, it was enjoyable, though, because I just wanted to see a movie that was the world getting blown up and didn't want to think so much about politics. But it is an odd scene because there's a lot of joking going on during it. And um, Jeff Goldman's sort of gotten some criticism for it because there's just this almost inappropriate level of joking. It's no longer like the comedy sci-fi world destruction buddy movie, but... Welcome to Earth. It's sort of... It gets darker in some ways and more what we come to expect in, say, post-2001 
2,000 action movies. But at the same time, it still tries to keep those comedy elements in it, and it doesn't always do it so well. Though it is an enjoyable movie, and I do recommend seeing it. Uh, but that's probably the scene that stands out the most to me. That and the, shall I say, changes to the interpersonal relationships of the characters between the two movies. It's interesting to see who ended up where and how, or just didn't end up anywhere it's and the, disappeared. It's the second sequel recently to use London as the... So Olympus has fallen, blew up, Washington, D.C. And then, okay, we're making a sequel, let's blow up London. And I wonder why London is the sequel fodder for... Because yeah, because in one of the the new Star Trek films, London gets hit pretty badly in that film. In um, the computer game Mass Effect Three, London features prominently in that and gets you know destroyed by aliens as well. So that. this is what the special relationship looks like after we've depicted our own cities getting completely wiped well, out. I mean, does is London's place in monument destruction porn the result of Beef Vendetta? I'm not so sure. I think it might just be that this. Again, the skyline, come back to the skyline, it's a really obvious thing, right? I mean, and they you know, already I, destroyed Paris in the first movie, yeah. so what else would be really recognizable? Yeah. So, well, I quite like the idea that the aliens didn't bother going to London the first time. They hovered menacingly over every major it's sort of, place, including the Empire State Building. It's not exactly well explained how they pick there. So, like, they go for major population centers, then it's mentioned that there's nothing in the Southern Hemisphere. It's like Sao Paulo is one of the biggest cities <laughs> in the world. Well, one of the huge issues I actually had with London is it's modern day London. I mean, when you see like modern Washington DC, I'm assuming, but like modern US scenes, it's things have been rebuilt, they look all shiny and new and better and you know, almost futuristic seeming. London's just London. How we see it today. There's a perception that old buildings in London are this impossibly old thing, which let's be fair, American audiences are somewhat beguiled by. The age of buildings in Europe is impressive. How did they work yes in the technology? How did they work in the technology from the first one? Well, the technology has been incorporated to, say, a moon base. There's new um, we'll fighter see them jets. coming this time, next yeah. time they hide behind Third the time they arrive. <laughs> <laughs> well, should I give away the biggest spoiler? Are you, I'm not watching it. Okay. <laughs> double, double lock spoiler warning, everyone. <laughs> We'll give but you 30 seconds. I'll bet it's a wormhole. So there's a thing that appears um, at the beginning of the film, and we're like, oh great, they're back again. Actually, it's not them. Turns out to be another um, alien ship coming back <laughs> to, <laughs> to send help from the Resistance, which we sort of find out halfway through the film because there's a sphere, and they keep it at Area 51 because that totally makes sense, and it has location of the Resistance planet, and... At the very end of the film, they, the sphere that manages to make it through um, communicates that um, the humans should come join them and help lead the, resist- lead the resistance, um, opening up for a third movie, of that, course. That's potentially an interesting place to go for the third one. I would actually really enjoy it to see if they do the interstellar travel, because that's really heavily leaned on at the end. One thing I don't like in the setup of that film, and this is just based on the trailers, but... The premise is the problem, and I think it's ridiculous in that you've had in the first film most of the Earth's major cities going up in smoke. They're vaporized. We say most. Certainly, a lot of the major popular uh, governmental centres. I mean, you know, they're targeting obviously all the industrialized cities. So, and military the, few, bases. the biggest Chinese cities, biggest European, biggest American, 
um, Russian as well going up. But in 20 years, they've managed to find the resources and the people to not only rebuild these cities, but advance human technology as well. In just 20 years. Well, I mean, what about all the um, climactic damage you do with all that dust you throw up by blowing up? I think the official website says 100 cities are destroyed this is the, by the aliens. It's known as an Endor apocalypse, right? All the wreckage falling into your atmosphere would actually... Well, well, that as well. I mean, even just thinking about the destruction of a hundred cities, the stuff that's from the atmosphere, you'd have a nuclear winter of sorts, even if, you know, we reject my earlier analysis that everyone would have gone <laughs> nuclear once the shields were down anyway. So, for me, that premise was ridiculous, in that in just 20 years, they've not only rebuilt and come back, but advanced technologically. I think, technology well, I think well. the idea is that they got the, the, the aliens. The global economy would have collapsed because most major cities are also coastal, major trading centres. <laughs> well, the other thing about it is that um, they talk about it, and they don't talk about it enough. Ten-year land war in Africa, fighting the aliens on the ship that crashes at the very end of the first film. Uh, Kilimanjaro. And there's a character introduced from this that's just absolutely kick-ass, standard, modern action hero. And fifty cent. I have no idea, <laughs> to be honest. Um, I, whoever it is, I I love the actor in this role though, um, because he does sort of the gruff comedy well. But he is talking a bit about the how his father died and brother died and this land war. But we need that prequel. Uh, if anything comes from this, if it doesn't have a sequel, we need that sort of in-between movie, because that's the interesting bit. Like what you're talking about with the rebuilding and everything. Where's that? Because that's 10 of those 20 years. How it relies on addressing the questions that they're not interested in yeah. addressing, right? I yeah. mean, that's not what this film does. I mean, is it is it as American-centric as, as the first one? Or is it like Independence Day, but the meaning of Independence Day is now World Independence Day, and then there's a scene at the end where they're like, this day will go down in history, not as a world independence day, but a galactic independence. Or, I don't we don't have the galactic <laughs> independence, but it leaves the door open for it. It does feel more international, um, especially because of the parts that take place on the moon. Uh, but it definitely still has... I mean, you have a lot of the main characters. Uh, Will Smith's character's stepson, for example, um, is one of the main characters in it. And... You just, it is American centric because of who the protagonists are, but they do try to throw in some new characters into the mix, um, into sort of the surrounding cast. Do they still have the, those British characters, the British officers? Are they, <laughs> are they back as veterans of exactly. reading Morse code messages? So, it's the aliens. They're back. Good God, man. I actually, I did have trouble recognizing some characters from one movie to the next just because it's been so long. So I've probably missed a few. I'll probably need to see it again just to go through and identify Is it full of, like, one-liners about how old the characters have gotten? No. Uh, Because that's not what you get. So I I guess the final thing to bring up is why do we have this wave of 80s and 90s, either remakes or sequels, or in the case of Ghostbusters, we're not sure which. But picking up 80s and 90s properties and making them again appears to be the in thing. I think that... Independence Day Resurgence should be commended for being one of the few sequels running around these days, because everything else seems to be a prequel or a rehash. 
these days. So I like that they, they're trying to take a franchise forward in time. Um, but yeah, it's still subject to you know remaking things in, in, in some way or using existing universes or franchises. To the credit, at least, they do change some things up. I, there's a lot of the plot of the second movie that really parallels the first. And there's moments of it where you're like, I know it's going to happen because of how this flowed in the first movie. But by adding in the sort of alien sphere and all of that, it, it does switch things up and make it a little more interesting. If they do come out with a third one, I could actually see it being the best of all three. Well, you heard it here first. Uh, well, <laughs> I don't know, I, I, I think it's just... I mean, let's face it, these films aren't made for artistic expression, right? These films are made because, like... I mean, they are to an extent, but the point is... We're in a peculiar situation culturally where... Generation-wise... The older generation have money and are... The kind of people that go to the cinema. Which wasn't the case for people going to the cinema... 40 years ago, for instance, where their parents wouldn't go to the cinema because that wasn't what they did. Or, you know, I'm, I'm not sure about the time spans, but I mean, these people have money and they have lots of it, right? I mean, actually, generational inequality is a thing, and so, you know, these people arguably have more money. So the thing that gets this film made is the same thing that gets Take That Back Together. It's the same that ends up, you know, you, you have rehashes all over the place. You have it in music, you have it in computer games, you have it everywhere. I mean, it's just that marketing. Cynicism. Okay, so uh, I'm going to talk. About, I'm going to defend the uh, the artistic intent of Independence Day and the marketing cynicism. Uh, Roland Emmerich, his pet project for many years was the film Anonymous. Uh, now, for those who've not seen it, Anonymous was about the Oxfordian conspiracy, the idea that Shakespeare did not write Shakespeare, uh, and the idea of the film oh, is that, that yes, oh. the idea of the film is that Shakespeare wants his plays not to be items of the aristocracy or of royalty but things adored and wanted by the general public because it's important that the messages in the plays get out to the general public. Now, the review of Bob Chipman has made the point that if you take that view as Emmerich's pet project and apply it to Independence Day, the artistic intent of Independence Day is to say that actually this broad, popular summer blockbuster is the perfect vehicle with which to make a political statement is the best vehicle because then most people will see it. And what's his statement? That we should abandon nationalism, that we should come together. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not doubting, like, if, if that's what he thinks, then fine, that's great. But, I mean, the, the, but the point is, the question you ask, why is all this stuff getting remade, right? Not necessarily just Independence Day or whether, you know, he believes that, which he may very well do. But in a broader context where we've got reboots at the Yazoo, which is definitely a technical term, then... <laughs> There has to be something to be said that, I mean, it's not just the creators, it's the people paying for these massive budget films to be made, right? I, I mean, I, I would in fact, I'd like to see a comparison of the budget between the two films, because I'm sure that the budget is ballooned. Right? Inflation-adjusted budget. Well, but even so, like, these things are so much more expensive to make now, because Independence Day was still relying on Practical film-based special yeah. effects, practical effects, or whatever you yeah, want to call them. Yeah, they did a lot of model-based I mean, actually, actually, it's quite funny, because when they do digital explosions, it looks absolutely terrible. <laughs> I, I think they got an Academy Award for Best Visual Effects, actually, independently. Yeah, whereas I, I very much doubt that the second one does that. I mean, the point is, actually, weirdly, now we're in a place where practical effects are really expensive. Right? This is what happened to you know um, the new Star Wars film. It was, it was hugely expensive because they wanted to do it like the first one. 
whereas now computers are a lot cheaper. Well, you can't... Star Wars would defend that by saying that it did improve the film. So John Boyega said that with BB-8, what they did is that it wasn't just a physical object. Is that he rolled on and off set like a character. Now, whenever they yelled cut, they could have just turned BB-8 off. But they didn't. When they yelled cut, BB-8 would beep at other people as if to say, see you later, and roll away to no, somewhere I'm, else. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not doubting the the importance of that. Like, I, I absolutely back it as a kind of legitimate aesthetic decision. I'm just saying that like, I'd, I'd be interested to see, because there are some bits now in the first film where it's like really obvious wire work and things like that. Was the second one, did they do that, or was the second one all CGI all the way? Uh, I guess all CGI, but you really can't tell. And when it comes to that movie, I mean, yeah, you have the explosions and all that, but for me what stood out was sort of the, not the nostalgia of it, but seeing what happened with certain characters. So, like, Jasmine, for example, becomes, I think, like a nurse or hospital administrator, I think. Mm. And, again, her scene where she dies is trying to save another person. Yeah, spoilers. <laughs> we warned them but it's fine. The thing that really gets me, and I, I must admit, this is... I, I really enjoyed this scene. I don't know why I got such a kick out of it exactly, but I think that's probably for a billion different reasons. The um, two chief scientists, the I can't remember his name, the guy with the really long hair, and yeah, it's just a little yeah. bit weird. So he ended up in a coma for the 20 years and finally wakes up as the aliens are coming back. But you see these scenes where his partner's there, is, and he's the other chief um, scientist, and he's um, knitted him a scarf and brings him different type of orchids and you know, decorates the sort of hospital room in Area 51 that he's in. But there's just... Those are the moments of the film that really stand out to me. It's the human moments that stand out, not the let's explode London as much. I mean, those are the things that sort of make the big shockwaves, but when I think about that movie, it's the personal narratives that are most but compelling. Did anyone buy the ticket for the personal narratives, or did they buy well, the ticket? I don't know. I mean, there is definitely a couple of different ways you can do it, right? I mean, you can, you can make a remake, right, and have new actors and all the rest of it, right? You can make a sequel... Uh, that effectively removes the original main characters from the film as soon as possible with the intent of grounding a continuation of the franchise, which is the kind of thing that happens in, like, I don't know, Rambo or Rocky or whatever, right? You have these constant, like, well, they'll be the grizzled old manager now because it's a generational thing, right? And then you have films which I think are probably rarer, which are made a significant amount of time after the first film and yet acknowledge the age and development of the original characters. And it sounds like this is at least trying to do that. I mean, the classic example of this is like Before Sunrise and Before Sunset, where the fact that the main characters have aged at the same rate the actors have, and there has been the same amount of time between the two films' settings, is I, actually quite an important point. And I will say the reason like, I bought my ticket, and I, I, I knew the day that it was coming out here, I, I was excited about beforehand, there was a bit of nostalgia thrown in, but I also it grew up on this movie. I mean, I've seen it countless times, it's part of that just sort of American 90s childhood cultural landscape, it's always on TV. That, Men in Black, um, Rush Hour movies, all of those movies, the sort of action, comedy type movies, those are what I remember from my childhood. Peak America. So it's, yeah, it, it's America. kind of that. But it's also nostalgia, but it's also, there's something about that story that's interesting enough that wants, or makes me want to come back to see more. 
well, that seems like as good a yeah. place to see to stop as any. Um, thanks very much, guys. Yeah. And and thanks everyone for listening. Uh, sorry if we spoiled anything, but we did warn you. Uh, <laughs> we'll see you next month. We'll see you next month. Bye.